We have a brand new book, the book of numbers, Sefer Bamidbar, and it's an amazing parsha, Parsha's Bamidbar. At first glance, it seems to be kind of boring and technical. You read it and your eyes glaze over. We're going through tribe by tribe, the head of the tribe and the number of the tribe and this thousand and that thousand. It's hard to keep track. And then it goes through it again. And then it goes through the Levites. It seems to be very repetitive. But of course, as is true with everything in the Torah, when we study it a bit deeper, we discover tremendous richness and insight. I want to focus on a central theme of the Parsha. Hopefully we will connect it with the upcoming festival of Shavuos and hopefully emerge with a deeper appreciation of our Parsha and of Shavuos and a greater drive, please God, to immerse ourselves in the Almighty's Torah. But also, and I'm a little bit wary of over-promising, but I think this time we have the goods. I think that this podcast will provide a satisfactory answer to one of life's most vexing questions. It's one of those questions that we all have, and it seems to be unanswerable. And that's why you tune into the Parsha podcast, to get answers to life's most vexing problems. And in this podcast, we will hopefully bring together a lot of the ideas and themes and concepts that we've discussed throughout the years. If you're a first-time listener, well, welcome. My name is Yaakov Wolpe. This is the Parsha Podcast. I'm in the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. Our website is torchweb.org. My email address is rabbiwolpe at gmail.com. The Parsha starts off, the book starts off with a census. This is the first day of the second month of the second year. So they left in the month of Nisan, and that was year one. A whole year has elapsed, year two, and now they're on the first day of the second month. This is the month of Iyar. This is a month after the erection of the tabernacle. And Moshe is told to conduct a census of the nation. And Rashi tells us that this is the third census since the Exodus. After the Exodus, they were counted. After the sin of the golden calf, when the nation was decimated, they were counted again. God wanted to know how many people were left. And now that the temple has been established amongst the nation, God's going to dwell amongst his people. For a third time in a year, the nation is being counted. And Rashi tells us that this is a sign of God's love of us. He loves us so much, he just can't stop counting us. We are so beloved to God, and that's why we have this census. Now, the Maral points out that the fact that we're counted three times within a year, it shows us that it's not just about the utility, and that's why there's a timestamp in the verse. You know that this is the third census in a year. Even in the United States, we have a census every decade. But the first two times that God had us counted after the Exodus and after the sin of the golden calf, you could argue that, well, that was done 
based upon the utility. How many people do we have and how many people do we have left? But now the God is coming to dwell amongst us. There's no obvious need to have us counted. And thus we have this timestamp and we know it's the third time and we know that it is solely because he loves us. Now, the counting is done in a very specific way. You recall Parshas Tisisa. This is not in the book of Numbers, not in the book of Leviticus, but at the end of the book of Exodus. We're told that there is a prohibition against an ordinary common census of the nation. If you don't count in a very specific way, it can be catastrophic. It can unleash a plague. Counting the nation is very dangerous. We know that David conducted a census and that led to a terrible plague. So we don't count Jews. We don't do a census unless we are instructed by the Almighty to do so. And even then, there is a specific protocol for how the nation must be counted. So first thing you do is you substitute a coin for every person. You count the coins and that's a proxy for the population. That we learned already in Parshas Tisisa. But why? Why is a census so dangerous? And here's the deep point. This is going to be one of the central themes of the podcast. If you just gather some humans together, and you just count one, two, three, etc., that reduces the individual. You take a human who is really a whole world, a whole universe, And you reduce it to a number, not just that, to some sort of fungible, interchangeable commodity. It's like voting. You know, one person, one vote. At least that's the idea. Oh, all citizens are equal. This is the antithesis of our idea of of a census. If everyone's equal, if everyone's the same, if there's uniformity, it doesn't matter what you are, what you do, what you represent – You're not just a whole universe on your own. You're just a number amongst a great mass. You know, voting. If one person leaves the state, goes to a different state, another person comes, nothing nothing changes, right? Because every person is the same. One human, one eligible voter, one vote. And every decade we have a census and we know how many people are apportioned to every state, every district, etc., But that reduces a whole universe, a human, to a number. A common census reduces the individuality of every person and renders them as this indistinguishable node in the larger whole. If you count someone, if you count people, then the individual is less prominent. But we have a different view. Every person... It's a whole world. We say this all the time. A person is obligated to say, the world was created for me. And every person is a complete one of one. Completely unique. One of a kind. And this is why the Torah is so opposed to a census. The moment you begin to commoditize people, you reduce them, you eliminate their individuality, they become interchangeable commodities. That reduction, that elimination of the individuality, the Torah tells us, is it's a risk to life. It can unleash a plague. 
And there's a deep point, and we've spoken about this in the past. A plague, the hallmark, the definition of a plague is that it does not differentiate amongst people. It just sweeps through a whole populace. If we make a common census, some undifferentiated counting of, of humans, we treat everyone as indistinguishable, undifferentiated, fungible commodities, well, then we're inviting a plague. That's exactly what a plague does. And therefore, the way the Torah does a census, the uncommon census, it's designed to avoid this problem. So, of course, we mentioned that besides for the idea that we redirect the census to be of the coins, not of the people, there are many other criteria of an uncommon census that accentuate the individuality of every individual. So the Ramban, many times throughout our parsha, tells us this idea. So the first thing he tells us is that the, the Torah doesn't tell us to count. It says to uplift, to elevate, to uplift the individual, to accentuate the individual amongst the community. Moreover, the counting, this was not something done by some nameless, faceless bureaucrat. You think about how you interact with government. You go to a DMV. In Texas, it's not the DMV. It's DPS. It's some nondescript, gray facade government building with long lines and all sorts of inefficiencies. And it's not a memorable experience. That's how you would imagine perhaps a common census would look like. But the census described in our parsha, it's conducted by the absolute greatest amongst the nation. Moshe, the leader, Aaron, the high priest, and the head of every respective tribe. And they're doing a lot more than simply notating and collating and gathering and marking stuff off on a checkboard, going around with a clipboard and keeping track, collecting the coins. The Ramban again tells us that there was something very profound about how this census, this uncommon census, was done. Everyone had a meeting with Moshe and with Aaron. Every individual was individually acknowledged and blessed. And they would come for Moshe. Moshe, the way the Ramban calls him, the, the father of the prophets and his brother, the Holy One of God. And he would become known, every individual would become known to Moshe with their name. And through that, they will have merit and life. All of them will be counted by Moshe and Aaron. And they will bestow positivity and goodness upon them. And they'll pray for them and they'll beseech God on their behalf. And the coin that they offer will serve as an atonement for their soul. And this wasn't just like everyone filing through like they're a bunch of cows or sheep. Each one of them was given their time with Moshe. And each one of them was given honor and greatness. And the Ramban even tells us that Moshe wouldn't even ask them, oh, tell me how many people you have in your family. He would meet every one of the children individually. This is a very different type of census. Everyone is truly being elevated. Everyone's being blessed. Everyone is being personally acknowledged by these giants, by these veritable angels, Moshe and Aaron and the heads of the tribes. 
and they're being blessed. And the Ramban here stresses that Moshe would get to know them by their name. That's a way of saying that he gets to know them by their essence. Moshe would peer into their soul and get to know them and their name and their essence and would give them direction in life. This is an encounter not with some census taker bureaucrat. This is an encounter, an individual's encounter with Moshe. You would never forget that. And this is truly uplifting every individual. If you think about it, this is more than just avoiding the problem of a common census. It's not just avoiding the problem, oh, let's not eliminate the individual. This is an overcorrection. This is going to the opposite extreme. It's about accentuating the individuality of every individual. Each one of them had their own audience with Moshe, with Aaron, with the heads of the tribes. And each one, they got to know them by name. And each one was blessed individually. And every child had their time with Moshe. And on a bit of a a deeper note, the Kabbalists point out, the verse tells us, second verse of our Parsha, Moshe counted them legul gilosam, which means literally their skulls, per capita, as we say. But the Kabbalists note that the word gul gilosam also means reincarnations. Moshe was able to foresee all the iterations, all the future iterations of the people that he was meeting, of their souls. This is accounting and uplifting of their souls as well. And the way I understand this, and this is what the Rabban is telling us, this is part of the counting. He got to know them by name. Name, of course, is another word for mission. Every soul is different. Every soul is a mission. And Moshe was able to see all of that. And he's able to tell them what they need to do in life. He's able to provide them guidance to each individual based upon the root of their soul. Everyone's different. Everyone's an individual. And every soul is given, is apportioned a different mission in life. And Moshe, with this incredible ceremony, is having this touch point to provide guidance and direction and a personalized blessing according to their souls, according to their names, according to their missions. In truth, there is a famous comment by the Gon of Vilna. We know throughout the millennia, our nation was fortunate to have many prophets. Of course, there are only 48 male prophets and seven female prophets that are named, that we know their names. But there were millions of prophets throughout our history. And what was the job of the prophets? So, of course, we have, you know, we have a book, many books of prophets. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, etc. So we have the actual prophecies that were conveyed to us and were canonized for us forever. So, of course, that's part of the role of the prophet. But that was a fraction of their work. Their primary job was precisely this. Our nation, our people, received tailored, bespoke, individualized direction from the prophet 
based upon the precise root of every individual's soul. My grandfather, bless him, used to say it like this. In times of prophecy, people didn't need to break their head, his words, to find out what they need to do in life. What is their particular path in life? They would go to the prophet. And the prophet, the, the seer, would see and would see their soul and see their name and see their mission and delineate that, outline that for the person. Codify for the person what is the root of their soul and what precisely must be their unique contribution in their life. That was the primary role of the prophets throughout our history. And this is what they did here with Moshe. Every individual, Moshe, got to know their name, got to know their essence, got to know their soul. And the Kabbalist tells even the future permutations of their soul. He's able to burrow, to plumb into the depths of a person. And they give him a blessing that's not just a generic blessing, a blessing that's fitting for who they are and what they need to do in life. That's a truly uncommon census. The uplifting of the individual to this incredible great heights. It's not just a counting, it's an uplifting. It's an accentuation of the unique individuality of every person. And this is a theme strung throughout the Parsha. We have the flags. Each tribe has their own flag, and that flag highlights the unique qualities and the unique role and the unique contributions that they need to play. And we have the positioning of the tribes. Each tribe is given the appropriate orientation on the tabernacle and with specifically other tribes that they are aligned with. And the Levites, they're the legion of the king, and they are counted separately. And they're counted, of course, from the age of one month. Every year I like to revisit this incredible Rashi. Chapter 3, verse 16. The verse says that Moshe counted the Levites as per the word of God. Now, if Moshe counted them, Rashi's question is, wait a minute, why is it as per the word of God? So Rashi tells us that there was a conversation that Moshe had with the Almighty. The rest of the nation was counted from the age of 20. So those are adults. The Levites, they're counted as infants from the age of 30 days. So Moshe says to God, wait a minute, how am I supposed to go? I'm supposed to go into everyone's house to find out all the Levites that are in the tent? I can't enter the tent to find out how many suckling infants there are in every tent, in every Levite home. And Rashi tells us what God's response was. This is my favorite Rashi. Of course, they're all my favorites, and you're not supposed to have favorites, as you know. But this is just an iconic Rashi. This is the bumper sticker Rashi we talk about every year here. The veteran listeners know what I'm talking about. God responded to Moshe, I say, Atashelcha, you do your job and let me do mine. Don't worry about God. People worry about God. Don't worry about God. You do your job and let me do mine. I could do mine. So Moshe says, okay, I'll do my job. And he went to go count. And in every Levite tent, God did his job. God would tell Moshe prophetically how many babies, how many suckling infants there were in every tent. And that's why the verse tells us, Al pi Hashem, as per the word of God. I have to always tell you this, Rashi, every Parshas Bamidbar, 
because it's such a powerful Rashi, and we can never forget that. We often want to do God's job. Oh, how's it going to work out? You don't have to do God's job. You do your job. Don't worry about God. He'll take care of his responsibilities. You can be sure of that. We have to do our job. We have to execute our responsibilities. And what's not in our control, what is in God's control, that's not our responsibility. That's God's responsibility. The Levites are counted, and the Levites are assigned their individual jobs, the transport of the tabernacle. Every time they moved, they relocated. They would have to break down and disassemble the tabernacle and prepare for travel and properly package it for travel. And that was done by Aaron and by his children. But then the Levites would join the Kohan of the priests for the transportation. And every family amongst the Levites was given certain general responsibilities. And every individual amongst the Levites was given a specific responsibility. And again, the Ramban tells us about this. The families were just told, oh, you, y'all just carry all the beams. No. Every individual said, this beam, the, the, the second beam on, on this side of the tabernacle, this is your responsibility. Oh, and this base, which is the, the 14th one from this, this one is yours. And this hook and this curtain, everyone was given a very specific, tailored, individualized role. Again, the same idea. Everyone's an individual. Everyone has their own name, their own soul, their own root of their soul, and their own path, their own mission. And all this is apportioned by Moshe as per the prophecy coming from God. Everyone's told specifically what they need to do again and again and again in our parsha. We see how the profile, how the stature, how the prominence of every individual is being raised, being uplifted. But of course, all that is within certain prescribed contexts. Everyone's an individual, but not on an island as a member of the greater whole. And this is the tricky balance. This is why a census is very hard to pull off. You have to count the whole nation. You have to view the nation to some extent on some dimension as a whole. But all the while, you have to accentuate the role of the individual amidst the whole. And if you read the, the parsh, you'll notice that there are actually different general groups that every individual must fall under. And they're counted on these different dimensions. They're counted as individuals. And then one concentric circle outwardly, you have the family. Well, she tells us, the verse tells us, they're counted as families. They have to even bring proof of their pedigree. They have to bring the, the documents that show their ancestry, their genealogy, to bring proof, witnesses, Rashi tells us to verse 18 of chapter 1, of who they are and which family specifically they come from. And that's, you know, that's closer to being an individual than being part of the whole nation. It's like in between. You have the individual in the middle, and then one concentric circle outside of that, you have the family, and then you have the tribe. They're all counted as members of, of the tribe. 
and then the whole nation at large. So each individual is accentuated according to their soul, according to their mission, uplifted. Their unique role, their unique name is told to them, but they're counted along with their families. Their identity is wrapped as a part of the family, part of a pedigree. And then it goes further out to the tribe and to the nation. And this is the balance, the individual amidst the family, amidst the tribe, amidst the nation. And if anything is off in this uncommon census, well, things can go awry. A common census is going to lead to a plague. Any census that doesn't have these elements perfectly calibrated is very problematic. And there's a reason why we only get this now. There is a force at the center of this. Rashi tells us, the very first Rashi in our Parsha, that when God settled amongst them, dwelled amongst them, lived amongst them with the tabernacle, that's when this third census was undertaken. Only when you have a mission in the center can we have this very elaborate layout, the counting of the individuals and the layout of the nation, the tribes, and every group of three tribes, the flags. Only now can this happen. Only after the tabernacle is grounded in the center and everyone understands the ultimate purpose of it all. Our mission, both our individual mission and our mission as part of a family and a tribe and a nation, all that orients around the center, around God. When God is dwelling in their midst and everyone wants to understand what they ought to do, then all this is laid out. Everyone's individual identity and purpose. And their identity and purpose as members of their family, their tribe, and the nation. If you think about it, the tabernacle itself, the mission itself, exhibits these multiple dimensions. We have, of course, communal sacrifices and individual sacrifices. What does that mean? It means that a person's service, relationship, connection with the Almighty, and the Almighty's presence is in the Mishkan, in the tabernacle. That relationship, these different relationships, are expressed in the tabernacle. Your individual relationship and mission, vis-a-vis what you're supposed to do in life, well, that's expressed in the tabernacle. And your communal relationship as part of this great glorified nation, that too is expressed in the tabernacle. And the tabernacle, after it was erected, it started off with 12 days of tributes, one per prince, per tribe. Every tribe had their unique role and relationship with the Almighty expressed in the tabernacle. So we see this duality of the tabernacle and how a person's individual life and mission and purpose can be expressed there, but also the collective, national, tribal relationship can also be expressed there as well. You know, one of the hallmarks of the temple, we're told in the sages, is omdim tzfufim. When everyone's there, the whole nation's there, they stand and they're cramped. 
But somehow when they bow, when they bow down, there's plenty of space for every individual. When they're bowing before God and they're expressing their relationship with God and they're talking to God, they're confessing before God. When that relationship turns to being individual, everyone's in the same room, in the same temple, but they're all alone. So one of the hallmarks of the temple is, and of course the tabernacle as well, it's a place of both individual expression of a relationship with the Almighty and also the greater population-wide national expression of our national relationship with the Almighty. It's a place of communal prayer, communal service, and individual prayer and service as well. With the Mishkan now safely ensconced in the center of the nation, we have our Parsha. On the first day of the second month, of the second year after the Exodus, now it's time to lay out these relationships and these missions on these dimensions. And the Maral points out, interesting, that the actual establishment of the tabernacle was a month prior, on the first day of the first month, a year after the Exodus, the first day of Nisan. So why is this census, and the whole parsha, this whole layout of this relationship and the different dimensions of that and the different identities that we're supposed to have and that balance that is being struck here in this uncommon census? Why is this happening now? It should, should happen really the first day of Nisan. That's when the Mishkan is underway. That was a busy day, of course. But make it a little busier. Why not? So what he tells us, very interesting. There's a principle in the Talmud that tells us that after a person lives in a city for 30 days, then they are treated as a member of this locale. That's when permanent residence can get established. Even here, you move to Texas. You have 30 days to, 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 to take your registration and license, take care of that. 30 days is, you're not quite settled. The Almighty moved into the tabernacle on the first day of Nisan, but only 30 days later did the residence, so to speak, be firmly established. And once this milestone is reached, the Almighty is now established in this residence, dwelling in this residence, this divine domicile in the nation. Now this can all be laid out. The people are given their individual identities and roles and the larger roles in these concentric circles, the family, the tribe, the nation, is laid out in our Parsha. Let's go a little further. I want to take this to us. It's a very nice idea, but it's very abstract. How do we do this ourselves? How do we discover our individual role? All of us are different. We're not monochromatic. We all have our own, so to speak, individual flag, our individual contribution, mission, name, root of the soul, role that we must play. What's our own unique identity? That's the vexing question. You know, if you were lucky to live in the times of Moshe, you would have this audience You'd have Moshe come and speak to you and get to know you and get to know your soul and even the future soul. 
and speak to you and direct you and guide you and bless you. We don't have Moshe and we don't have even any prophets to give us the individualized direction and guidance. Now, the national communal responsibility, it's a little bit easier to answer. We have a Torah. And the rules of the Torah, well, they apply universally to our nation. And those are the national level, so to speak, responsibilities. But what about the individual, unique, personalized mission? That's the vexing question. As a Jew, we know what we need to do as a Jew in an undifferentiated manner. Everyone knows. You just, well, it's it's a lot to learn, but you can read the books. It's written down. And it's very well organized and it's all put together. And yes, it demands a lot of work to study it and to observe it. But those are known. At least to someone. Someone knows it. And there's a possibility of us knowing it as well. But there's a whole Torah that has your name and no one else's name on it. And that's what Moshe was telling them, their name. What's your unique name? What's your unique soul? And there's no book to read it. And that's the vexing question. How do you find the answer to that question? I'll tell you. The first thing we need to know is that there is an intimate connection between Torah and the temple, between Torah and the tabernacle, between Sinai and the Mishkan. The Ramban tells us, this is found in many places as well, The tabernacle is a portable Sinai. The nation had this incredible revelation at Sinai. And that was given a permanent expression in the tabernacle. This is an idea we've talked about many, many, many times. But there are many connections between Torah and let's say the ark. The ark is at the epicenter of the tabernacle and the temple. And the crown around the ark is the crown of Torah. And Torah is more precious than pearls. Yikara himipinim. Torah is more precious than he who enters Lefnai Lefnim. It's more precious than the high priest who enters the Holy of Holies. Why? Because he enters only once a year. It's an occasional thing. And what does he find? He finds the Torah there. In the ark. Well, what do you have there? First set of tablets, second set of tablets, the Torah that Moshe wrote. The Talmud tells us that since the day that the temple was destroyed, the Almighty has no dwelling place in this world, but he does. He has no dwelling place in this world outside the four cubits of halacha, of Torah study. The Mishnah tells us, Perkyavos, if ten people are studying Torah together, then God is with them, and even if five, and even if three, and even if two, even if a person is studying alone, God is with them. You can recreate the tabernacle with Torah. And just as the tabernacle 
existed on multiple dimensions. There was the communal, so to speak, and then there was the personal. Sinai was like that as well. And the Torah is like that as well. The Sinai relation, our sages tell us, it was a multidimensional experience. The Midrash tells us, Ramchal has an essay on this. God revealed himself and everyone was there and it was a communal experience. But every person experienced it completely differently. Sinai was one revelation on the communal dimension, but it was 600,000 unique, concurrent, individual revelations. Each one received the Torah on two dimensions. Communally, they all received it together. One nation coalesced around the mountain. But every individual also accepted the Torah, the individual Torah, in their own unique way, in a way that was completely personalized, tailored, bespoke, fitting for their soul. So Sinai, like the Mishkan, it's a hybrid revelation. There's the universal revelation, that's the 613. And then there's the individualized revelation, and that's the unique mission of every individual. So with the tabernacle, and the uncommon census, these dimensions of of Sinai were given permanent expression. And that's our Parsha. But this is a way of saying, you're just following along, and there's a lot of moving parts here, this vexing question that plagues and bedevils serious thinking people, and that's us, come on, if you listen to the Parsha podcast, you're you're one of us. Serious people have to wrestle with this question. What am I here to do? What is my mission? Why did God create me? Of course, the the general mission, my my responsibility as a Jew, that's painstakingly outlined in the Torah and the rest of the words in the Talmud, in the Halacha, etc., But what is my individual responsibility? What is my individual mission? What must I, to the absolute exclusion of every other person in history, what is my Torah? What is incumbent upon me and no one else? What is the root of my soul? What would Moshe and Aaron tell me? What would the head of the tribe tell me? What would they direct me to do? What was my unique, one-of-a-kind Sinai revelation? For those of y'all with a good memory, what was my letter out of the 600,000 letters in the Torah? That question, that vexing question, was answered by Moshe. Was answered by Moshe after the Mishnah was firmly established. And if that question was answered... Via Moshe, and if that question could be answered via the Mishkan, because the Mishkan again exists on those two different dimensions, it can also be answered via Torah. The tabernacle is an extension of Sinai. It's a dwelling place. It's a domicile for God, and so too is Torah. It's exactly the same. There's an essay in Masil Sicharim, Way of the Upright, chapter 26, about this. 
And this is the, this is the line that he says. The Shekhinah resides on the Torah scholar exactly the way it resided in the temple. And that's why if someone gives wine to a Torah scholar, it's like they're offering libations upon the altar. And that's why if someone offers food to the Torah scholar, it's like they have brought Bipurim, the first fruit offering to the temple. And this is not to encourage rapacious gluttony on behalf of the Torah scholar. But the idea is the Torah is able to create a complete, perfect image of the temple and the tabernacle and the altar. And therefore we know if the tabernacle is the backdrop for our parsha, for the discovery of our essence, and Torah study is exactly like the tabernacle on some level, then syllogistically we know for sure that Torah study can be an answer to the vexing question as well. This is all the setup. Now we're starting the podcast. We're going to answer the vexing question. So first of all, we have to acknowledge that there are many answers to this vexing question. We don't have prophecy, but we may have other things, other indications of how to figure out what is our Torah. As an example, we have a prayer that we say multiple times a day. Give us our portion in your Torah. There's something in the Almighty's Torah that's, that's ours and no one else's. But let's share a new answer. This answer was developed by my grandfather, Blessed Mary, in uh, one of his essays. And I think it will, of course, give us an answer to the vaccine question, but also it will deepen our appreciation for the Torah and our love for the Torah. This is very apropos, very fitting, very topical, given that next week is Shavuos, which is the anniversary of the sign of relation, when we got the communal Torah and the individual Torah as well. Here's the idea. The Talmud tells us, in the book of Kiddushin, on page 30b, it's quoting a verse. The verse says, As ha'oivim b'shar, the enemies at the gate, not to be confused with its cousin, the barbarians at the gate. The enemies are at the gate. What does that mean? Says the Talmud, even a father and a son, a teacher and a student that are studying together Torah in one gate, they become enemies. But they don't depart until they become best of friends. They love each other. This is an amazing idea. The Talmud tells us, the book of Kiddushin, on page 30b, even close allies, father and son, teacher and student, when they study Torah together, when they do it properly, it results in hatred. Very, very surprising. Unbelievable Talmud. Two people, father and son, 
They love each other. Teacher and student, they love each other. Even they, when they study together in one date, whatever that means, they hate each other. Why would they hate each other? Can't they have some convivial, kind, respectful study? Why must shared Torah study, in a specific way, why must it result in hatred? The answer, very deep, very profound. Torah study, done properly, penetrates the depths of a person and touches their innermost essence. And it illuminates their innermost essence. It awakens their innermost essence. If the Torah has a touch point with your soul, you're not studying generically, superficially, just skim the surface, dip my toe in it, some nice ideas to talk about, to think about. If the Torah study is touching your essence, what differentiates you from every other human that ever existed? That sort of Torah is going to trigger hatred. How so? You're studying Torah. You have a study partner. It could be your father, your son, your teacher, your student. But every person has a different soul. We're all different on that level. If you get to the root of the soul, the essence, the innermost point of the soul, at that level, at that point, every one of us is completely unique. We're on a different planet at that point than every other person who has ever existed. That is the point in which we're completely different and we're in our own world. And if we're studying properly, not superficially, at that level, there's a touch point. There's a fusion of the Torah with the part of us that is completely different than any other person who has ever existed. And therefore, necessarily, no two people will see things the same way. Every soul is different. And every soul that has a touch point in the Torah will see an angle, a perspective, a dimension that will differ from the way that any other person who experiences Torah at that depth does. And therefore, it doesn't matter how close they are, father, son, teacher, student, they're going to hate each other. Why? Because I'm going to have Torah, and it's going to be so clear to me, and the other person is talking about the same thing, and they're completely off base, and they're completely wrong, and they're corrupting the Almighty's Holy Torah, and they're, 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 it's like they're from a different planet. And the truth is, they are from a different planet. Because at that level, you're in your soul, and they're in their soul, and those souls are completely different. If you are studying on that level, and you encounter someone who's studying on a completely different dimension, corrupting the Amai's Torah, that's not okay. Someone who corrupts the Amai's Torah is someone you hate. 
And that's why there's hatred. If there is Torah study that is cordial and pleasant, that is great. That's wonderful. But you know for sure that the two people are not engaging at this depth. If there's no war, if there's no conflict, then this is evidence. There's some degree of a generic study that's happening over here. The bright light of Torah does not penetrate to the roots of their soul. And therefore, they have not arrived at this point of differentiation between their souls. The kind of Torah study that's being talked about over here is a sort of study that exposes the soul, unearths the uniqueness, surfaces the total individuality of every individual. And if they're both operating on that level, necessarily a disagreement will erupt to the degree that they will hate each other. But if they do it properly, they won't leave. They won't depart until they love each other. The Torah, the pursuit of the truth of the Torah, will unite them, will bond them together more closely than any other pursuit. And and both of these dimensions exist simultaneously. Just as with the Mishkan, there was an experience that a person had when they went there that was completely unique to them. There was a message that Moshe and Aaron and the heads of the tribe gave to every individual that was completely unique to them. But of course, they're all part of a certain family. Everyone has a family, a tribe, and collectively as a nation, they're all united. Torah is the same. There's going to be a dimension of it where there's such complete individuality that the other person is on a different planet. And the fact that they're talking to you is, is, is irritating. It's hatred inducing. But you're not going to leave hating them because on the collective level, you're bound together with such ropes of love. You won't leave before the bonds of love and closeness are ever tighter. And there's another point. This hatred-inducing study will actually itself engender love. Because what's happening here? Each one of them is helping the other one develop sharpen, identify their own individuality. Like two swords scraping and sharpening each other. Each one is helping the other develop, identify, cultivate, hone themselves. And therefore, each one is going to emerge from this experience with treasure. It's going to be something like meeting Moshe and Aaron, the heads of the tribes. They're each going to emerge with a keener sense of their own soul, their own essence, their own name, their own identity, their own individuality, their own Torah. This experience is going to resemble, to some degree, the Sinai revelation, where everyone's told, 
their own Torah. They all have their own experience. It's going to be akin to the audience that they had with Moshe and Aaron and the heads of the tribes in this very uncommon census of our Parsha. We all want to undergo a process of self-actualization. We want to develop ourselves. We want to reach our potential. And to do that, we have to know. We have to know with clarity what makes us special. We have to know what makes us unique. We want to understand what we're here to do. And of course, collectively, we know. On that dimension, on the national level, we know. Maybe we don't know. We're ignorant, but at least we know where we can find out some answers. And here we discover that with Torah study of the deep, committed, and uncompromising variety, we can access a beacon of light that's completely unique to us. And when you undertake this excursion with a study partner, sparks must fly. On the level of the individual, we're all different. We're not generic, interchangeable commodities. If we ignore that, if we do a common census, it's a capital offense. We're killing the individual. It can lead to a plague. It's only our individuality that keeps the plagues at bay. But that must be done in the context of the whole. The individual, in a family, in a tribe, in a nation, around the tabernacle. Today, as of this recording, on May 17th, 2023 at 1.36 p.m. Central Time. We don't have a temple rebuilt, but we do have a Torah. And when we celebrate the day of the giving of the Torah, hopefully we now have a deeper understanding of the power and the potency of Torah. And we see, we see its ability to answer the most vexing question of our lives. We like to end off the Parsha podcast with a question. We like to start off with an idea, an insight, some profound idea, hopefully, from the Parsha. And we ended off with a question, an idea and a question, because we want to raise our Parsha IQ, and of course, our general intelligence as well. But here's the question. The verse tells us that the Levites were counted. And then it tells us that the sons of Aaron and Moshe were counted as well. This is chapter 3, verse 1. These are the sons of Aaron and Moshe on the day that God spoke to Moshe on the mountain of Sinai. And then it proceeds to talk about the sons of Aaron, the four sons of Aaron, the two that passed away, Nadavanavihu, and the two that survived. Moshe's sons are not mentioned. And the problem is that the verse starts off by telling us that these are the sons of Aaron and Moshe. And then we get a list of Aaron's sons and not Moshe's sons. That's the question that Rashi asks. And he tells us that, well, Aaron's sons are also Moshe's sons. Because Moshe taught them Torah. And if someone teaches someone else Torah, it's as if 
They have given birth to them. That's what Rashi tells us. And here's the question. Moshe indeed taught Torah to Aaron's sons. But you know who else Moshe taught Torah to? The whole nation. In fact, we're told in the sources that Moshe individually taught every part of Torah to every single Jew. So according to this idea in Rashi, everyone is Moshe's children. So why does the verse say, oh, Aaron's sons, well, they're, they're also Moshe's sons. Because Moshe taught them Torah. That, that applies to everyone. Everyone is Moshe's children because Moshe taught the Torah to everyone. So that's the question. I will point out that the Maharal asks this question. And what he says is that there are different levels of teaching. There is a level of teaching, that's the conveyance, the giving of knowledge. And there's a type of level of teaching that's akin to childbirth of this variety. And Moshe did a degree of teaching specifically with his nephews, with the sons of Aaron, that he did not do with the rest of the nation. Now, what the difference between these two types of teaching, of pedagogy, are, it's a great mystery. It's something to ruminate upon, but certainly an interesting question to ponder and to think about as we wrap up this edition of the Parsha Podcast. My name is Yakov Wolby. I'm in Houston, Texas. I'm in the Torch Center, in the glorious studios at the Torch Center. This is the Parsha Podcast. If you have not yet sampled some of my other shows, with the help of the Almighty and with the support of y'all, your listenership, and of course, your material and financial support of our organization, I am the proud host of six different podcast shows. If this is the only one that you're listening to, you should give them, give them, give them a try. Sample them. Sample some of our other shows from my colleagues here at the Torch Center. I hope you enjoy this. I think this was a very profound one. I feel like I have to re-listen to this. It's so deep. Very, very, very deep. Very profound. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Have a terrific rest of your week. I hope everything that you do this week is completely replete with blessing. And have an incredible Shabbos. Parshas Bamidbar. Upcoming... It should be an invigorating Shabbos. It should be a Shabbos that we are doing exactly what the Almighty wants us to do. We're connecting to the Almighty on this incredible day. And please, God, with the help of the Almighty, we will talk again next week. My email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com.